0: I am Danielle DeQuattro, and I'm a student at Grove City College, and I will be interning with the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute this summer. Today I am proud to introduce our next speaker, Yang Ma. Yang Ma is the deputy, Deputy Policy Director and former Deputy Communications Director for Ben Carson for President 2016 campaign. Ms. Ma legally immigrated to the United States from Communist China at age 10. She's the author of Chinese Girl in the Ghetto, a memoir about getting to know freedom from post-Mao China to inner city Oakland, California. Previously, Ms. Ma served as a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute of War, Revolution and Peace at Stanford University, a premier conservative think tank. Practiced law at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett LLP, a leading global law firm headquartered in New York, managed corporate communications at Cine.com, the first mainland China-based internet company to be listed on the NASDAQ stock market, and served on the first first professional staff of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, a congressional commission established to examine the security implications of America's economic relationship with China. From 2007 to 2012, Ms. Ma was a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. In in 1998, Ms. Ma served on the staff of an American delegation whose leaders were appointed by former President Bill Clinton and invited by former Chinese President Zhang Zemin to visit China and discuss religious freedom. In 1996, Ms. Ma was the Bay Area Outreach Coordinator for Proposition 209 a ballot initiative that ended public racial and gender preferences in California. Ms. Ma has written about China, international affairs, the free market, and conservatism. Her articles have been published by the Wall Street Journal Asia, the International Herald Herald Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, the Weekly Standard, FoxNews.com, Forbes.com, and other publications. She has also served as a columnist for the Wall Street Journal's China Real-Time website. She has appeared on a number of outlets including Fox News Channel, CNN, MSNBC, C-SPAN, and more. Ms. Ma received a BA in government, magna cum laude from Cornell University, and a GD from Stanford Law School. In college, she served as president of the Cornell Review, a bi-weekly conservative newspaper. In law school, she was president of the Stanford chapter of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies, an organization dedicated to conservative and libertarian legal principles. So without further ado ado, Ms. Ma. Good morning,
1: everybody. Uh, Danielle, thank you so much for that very kind introduction. Uh, I want to thank Michelle and the Loos Institute for having me here again. It is great to return to the Reagan Ranch Center when um, the Carson campaign ended. I was up. of course, a little bit sad, but one good outcome of that was that it gave me more time, and more time means I get to hang out with the Luce Institute and other conservative organizations again, and I get to meet wonderful women like yourselves um, from all across the country. As Michelle mentioned earlier, I got to know the Luce Institute when I was in college, and and, uh, that was something that I certainly treasure, and I have... Been very grateful for its presence over the years. And uh, one thing I've noticed, uh, having worked in a lot of institutions that are very liberal, having lived in a lot of cities that are predominantly liberal, um, uh, one thing I have noticed is that some of the people who are most uh, hostile, some of the people who are nastiest, to conservative women uh, tend to be other women and they tend to be liberal women and so I really wish that when I was younger when I was whether in college or just coming out of college that I could have met folks like you guys Uh, you know this is a wonderful community and I'm so proud of all the smart and confident and and uh, wonderful women here in the audience, and so it's it's great to be back. Um, uh, just recently, a couple of weekends ago, I was on MSNBC, and they asked me a question, and they asked me about some uh, very hot topic in the news, and, and they, the anchor said, uh, well, what do you think about that as a Republican woman? Um, and my answer to her was that, well, I don't buy the premise of your question just because the left feels that somebody ought to have a certain view because they are of a certain race, a certain gender, a sexu- certain sexual orientation, a certain ethnicity. I don't buy that. That's a view that conservatism does not buy uh, and that we don't believe that somehow ethnicity is your destiny, gender somehow is your destiny, or race is your destiny. And I think over the years, the Clare Booth Luce Policy Institute plus other conservative organizations have done a great deal to help young women and to help young people explore what exactly does it mean to be a conservative? What exactly does it really mean to be a conservative woman? Uh, There all kinds of disagreements out there. Even amongst conservative women, we have some disagreements. But you know, but it's great to have those discussions and to, um, to have a support network where you can go to, uh, where not, uh, you can discuss not only policy ideas, but your values. So Michelle asked me to talk a little bit about my book today. Uh, the book is called Chinese Girl in the Ghetto. And it is about my family's journey from communist China to inner-city Oakland, California. Um, And before I start talking about the book, I, I suppose I should go back to my days in college. I went to Cornell University, and when I first showed up, I really wasn't quite sure what I was. I wasn't a Republican. I don't come from a Republican family. I wasn't sure that I was conservative. But one thing that was clear to me was that I was not particularly interested in the kind of ideology that the left wanted to impose on me. So this idea of identity politics, the political correctness. And um, over the years, as I think back on it, and I think one of the reasons why I became a conservative on campus very quickly was that my story was one that the left never thought or, and still does not think is possible um, or should be possible. Um, my own personal story is one that contradicts many of the teachings of the left and uh, it took many years for me to tell this story because i think for a very long time i thought it would be rather narcissistic to share it but uh, my story is one about hard work and personal responsibility and how to how to prevail over adversity and to um, and uh, the importance of taking advantage of the abundant opportunities that this country um, offers now my family um, showed up in inner-city Oakland, California, and as I said earlier, we came from communist China. And a lot of people have asked me over the years, why did you guys choose to go to inner-city Oakland, California? And for those of you who don't know about Oakland, it is one of the most dangerous cities in America, and I think it oftentimes ranks just right behind Detroit. Well, this is the reason why we showed up in Oakland, um, was because of the equality that President Obama and others of his party love so much. Uh, when When my family immigrated from China, China was a place of a lot of economic equality. We were equal in our poverty. We were equal in not having running hot water. We were equal in not having modern toilet facilities. We were equal in having no refrigerator, no TV no washer, no dryer, and none of the other modern amenities that we take for granted here in the U.S. Uh, And we were all equal in our lack of access to opportunities. And because of that equality, my family was just eager to leave China, and they didn't care where in the U.S. uh, they were going to go. They just wanted to go to the U.S. And so we came. Um, What we, you know, and what we didn't know very well was that in China, the state told us where to live, where to work, what to buy, and for how much, and we understood quite well that that was not going to be the case here in the United States. Back then, uh, China was not the second largest uh, economy in the world that it currently is. Uh, Back then, the per capita GDP of China was less than $200. Here in the United States, it was over $12,000. So if you compare $212,000, we decided that, I mean, not that we knew what the per capita GDP was at the time, but we were uh, quite aware of the fact that America was a wealthier country and we wanted to live in a wealthier country. So um, when we showed up in Oakland, there were plenty of surprises. What we saw was the welfare state. Poverty was rampant, racism was rampant, Uh, urban decay was everywhere. And my family had limited financial resources, so we uh, had to fight poverty the old-fashioned way. We worked. My parents didn't speak English, uh, so they took whatever menial job they could. In the beginning, they worked for less than minimum wage, Uh, President Obama and a lot of folks uh, on his side of the aisle like to say that we've got to raise the minimum wage and raise the minimum wage or you know it's not fair to the poor but What they don't realize is that jobs don't just fall out of the sky. And for a lot of folks who are poor and who don't have skills, particularly in the immigrant community, people who don't have English skills, they take whatever jobs they can. And when the government imposes edicts and mandates on businesses, uh, businesses tend to hire fewer people because their costs have gone up and they pass those costs down to the employees and their consumers. So... uh, We didn't know that back then, of course, but what we did know was that uh, we weren't going to ask the state to help us, that the only people who could help us was ourselves, and so my parents often worked two to three jobs um, for long hours, and in the end what they did do was that they made sure that their two children, um, me and my brother, never went hungry. There was rampant racism in the in the inner city, and one thing that we discovered uh, was that everybody could be a racist. It didn't matter what race that particular person was. Uh, When we arrived in the ghetto of Oakland, uh, a new name was bestowed upon us, and it was Chinaman. And I realized very quickly that anybody who looks like us, whether they were Japanese, Korean, Filipino, Vietnamese, they became a Chinaman too. And oftentimes what we saw on the streets were teenagers screaming racial epithets at all these Chinamen, particularly at elderly Asian immigrants who were too slow to run away from their attacks. Criminals conducted their version of racial profiling by usually attacking those Asian immigrants um, who had a reputation of carrying more cash, wearing more jewelry, And yet, all of these acts of racism were ignored by the mainstream society. Nobody really cared because it did not fit into the prevailing narrative of America, of mainstream America, that only certain groups of people, or in fact, only one group of people can be racist. The public educational system in Oakland was also extremely disastrous. There were all kinds of instructors who didn't teach, And, in fact, I had a number of instructors who regularly left their classrooms unattended. There were students who dropped out because of lack of interest or gang violence, and there were plenty of parents who felt that it was not their responsibility to look after their children or to supervise their children's schoolwork, um, and there were plenty of students who refused to learn. Violence and lawlessness was everywhere uh, from time to time. I would hear gunshots outside of my window, and uh, on one particular occasion, my father found a bullet lodged on the side of our house. Regardless, my family prevailed. Uh, we got out, and uh, in my case, i uh, what I personally did that was kind of unique to me was not to the rest of my family, was that I studied my butt off, um, and I got... Gr- the kind of grades that I needed to get away to go to a good university on the east coast that didn't suffer from the kind of violence and decay and racism that Oakland offered to us. And then some years after I graduated from college, I extracted my family from Oakland as well. Now, to people like President Obama, to people like our friends on the left, and to all those people who have Derided your conservatism on college campuses and elsewhere. My story really is one that's not supposed to happen. I had no business. I had absolutely no business getting out of the ghetto without some massive amount of government assistance. Um, government assistance was something that my family uh, to a large extent did not participate in. There were certainly job training programs um, that my family, that my parents took advantage of. There were little things here and there, but um, because of the fact that my parents didn't really speak English when they showed up, they just didn't know about (laughs) these government programs, and I think for many of them back then, even if they had applied, they would not have qualified. So we made our way out of the ghetto without welfare, without massive dependency. Um, And the mentality that our friends on the left peddle is that they never even, under that mentality, they never even suspect that a story like mine would be possible. Because without the the assistance of the state, without the supervision of the state, and without the goodwill of folks like President Obama, poor people, minorities, they're not supposed to prevail. Now, this is not to say, of course, that inequalities don't exist. The inequalities um, in income, um, in background, and all kinds of other things, obviously, they do exist. But what we do know is that even though there are lots of hardworking people who feel that the odds are stacked against them, the truth is that getting out of poverty is not supposed to be a cakewalk. Life is unfair uh, unless we want to live in a country where everything is absolutely equal. Um, What we do know is that there are people who are not fortunate enough to be born in a wealthy family. Some of us aren't even fortunate enough to be born in this country. And what I will assure you is that we do not want to go back to the kind of equality that the country of my birth, China, used to have. In fact, even China itself does not want that kind of equality today, which is why China embarked on uh, historic economic reforms. It's why China has been consistently moving towards the path of capitalism over the last 35 years or so. Um, And that's how China became the second largest economy in the world. But don't forget for a minute, what you actually happens when the state runs the economy, when the state has its tentacles everywhere in the economy. The only thing that really is equal in a society like that is misery and poverty and scarcity. In a free country, men and women actually have choices, and they make choices to extract themselves from less than stellar circumstances. And it is economic growth and economic opportunity that will make our lives better. Uh, It is not government dependency. It is not massive government regulations. Uh, It certainly is not the kind of class warfare that we've heard from the White House for the last seven plus years. Uh, And it certainly is not the kind of rhetoric that we've often heard um, in this election season. Ultimately, personal responsibility is the foundation for success and independence. My story is proof of that. Uh, My story is proof that just because you're of a particular race, a particular ethnicity, a particular gender, you're not destined for particular things. And my story is proof that a mentality of victimhood is not what paves the path to success. In a free society, people have the chance to walk away from some of the worst attributes into some of the finest virtues. And those virtues are available to everybody, regardless of race, regardless of gender, and regardless of the modesty of their backgrounds. And so um, as you all juggle much more practical things ranging from studying for your exams and getting a job um, to just uh, having a great time on a college campus. Don't let the political correctness on your college campuses and don't let the identity politics uh, chain you into its moral bankruptcy. Um, A lot of that is nonsense. The hogwash is all there, but unfortunately, because of how much that hogwash permeates every aspect of our society, sometimes it's very hard to extract yourself from it or to see clearly um, what is what. So, um, you know, what, one thing that's very good about, and and a gathering like this is that you find all kinds of people who agree with you, and a lot of these people aren't necessarily on your college campuses, and perhaps where you are now, you're just a voice in the minority. But um, uh, but many of you stand for a voice of truth, a voice of reason, and I hope you guys will keep it up, and I'm happy to take any questions. Um, I will apologize in advance. I do need to leave for the airport right after uh, I'm done with this talk and so if I am unable to get to your questions uh, you guys are all welcome to contact me on my website it's uh, yingma.org that's spelled y-i-n-g-m-a.org and you know please feel free to ask any questions. Um I think it's on you.
0: Yeah. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by identity politics? because I don't think I've ever heard that before, and I really um, I really liked the idea of it. But can you elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, by that, I mean that your um, identity and it's and the kind of identities that the left cares about, right? I'm not referring to the fact that you're a great artist or that you're a great, baseball, softball player. I'm not talking about those kinds of identities. I'm talking about the identities that the left cares about, your race, your gender, your ethnicity, um, your sexual orientation, those broad categories. And and I, I spoke about this a little bit in my talk, too, that those identities are supposed to determine how you see the world. If you're a woman, you're supposed to see the world Via this lens of sexism and gender oppression, if you are a black person, you're supposed to see it through the lens of the um, of racism. If you are a Hispanic person, you're supposed to automatically be um, um, supportive of amnesty on. You know, immigration issues, uh, and so on, and so on, and so by identity politics, I'm referring to this ideology of the left that these sort of identities that go to so-called immutable characteristics are supposed to determine who you are, what you do, what your future is supposed to be, who you associate with, um, and that's the kind of you know that's the kind of ideas that I think we've been fighting against, and I think many of you, it sounds to me like, have been fighting against those ideas on your college campuses as well as elsewhere too Um, yes right here
0: so my question is your story is, you know, they say on the left, unique, you're not supposed to have made it out of Oakland. How do you respond back to them when they say, but you're a small percentage. If you look at the people that were surrounded by you that have not gone out of Oakland, you know, you're over here on the charts. So you don't count because you're an outlier perspective, because I've heard that many
1: times from people. Sure, sure. So I um, think there are probably two parts to that answer. Number one, I know many, many immigrants who have made it out of um, undesirable circumstances, just as I have. Their um, their stories are probably a little bit different in different ways, and uh, you know we've got folks here who are immigrants too, and and I'm sure they can testify to to you know their stories, but. Um, Lots of immigrants come to this country and emerge out of poverty. They may not have showed up in inner-city Oakland just like I did, but um, I don't think it is unique in America and certainly not unique in American history for folks who come from um, families that are not rich to, um, in fact, advance in the economic ladder. The other part of this is that a lot of the policies that the left has put into place, in fact, have not... Um, produce the kind of results that they say um, um, are necessary, right? So, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example. The left says that we need affirmative action. We need to give preferences to people of a particular, of, of certain races and or of a particular gender uh, because there's no other way they can, um, you know, they can do well. And it's otherwise unfair. But what I have noticed, having... Sat in rooms full of very snotty elitist people over the years. Is that it is true that there are very few people like me? In fact, having sat in some of the most elite elitist institutions, I've rarely ever found other minorities who have come out of circumstances that I have. In fact, the only other person that I know of personally is my former boss, Doctor Ben Carson, who emerged from the dilapidated streets of Detroit to to become a world-renowned neurosurgeon. And I think one of the reasons is because these affirmative action programs don't really care about the people who are in the inner cities. A lot of times, the folks these policies benefit are the folks of a particular race or particular ethnicity that would make a lot of college college administrators feel really good about themselves. But if these folks are the folks who come from... Middle or upper middle class families, where the parents are doctors, lawyers, um, you kind of have to wonder, you know, is it really fair to give preferences to children like that compared to perhaps a Hispanic kid who's, you know, um, whose parents are working three jobs, four jobs, um, and you know, after the kid comes back from school, she's got to take care of her siblings, um, and so. I'm not advocating necessarily for economic affirmative action, but what I'm saying is that a lot of these policies that folks on the left have put into place are not producing the results that they claim to, and you know, and in fact, they're per- perpetuating the cycles of dependency, perpetuating um, a lot of undes- undesirable results. Yes, right there, um, the lady, in that. or we can make our way back. <laughs>
0: What I seem to notice is kind of this uh, perspective that people don't understand history, they don't understand the importance of freedom because they've never stepped outside of America, they can't appreciate it at face value. What do you suggest for young conservative women to, to help people realize that we have it really good here and if we don't protect our freedoms, it's not going to continue on to the next generation like Ronald Reagan said? What would you suggest for conservative women to kind of make people aware of what's going on outside of America and that we don't wanna bring that here?
1: Well, I think one of the best ways is to, in fact, I think you guys are such a great showcase of of a promising future for America, right? And a lot of people talk about conservative women and and a lot of our friends on the left and you know, say that with a certain note of derision and they, most of them have never really met conservative women. Most of them have never really met a real conservative. In fact, a friend of a friend just, who lives in New York City just told me recently she has no friends. So she doesn't know anybody um, on a friendly basis who's a Republican. And... Um, and she bases her views on Republicans. Um, you know, she's she's um, a very nice girl who's very critical of Republicans, but it does make me wonder, you know, when people form their views um, without a whole lot of knowledge, without a whole lot of homework, then, of course, you're not surprised when they veer toward a certain direction that's, you know, that's unfair or just not very smart. Um, I think one just... Number one, I would say be who you are. Don't be afraid to be who you are. I think by virtue of the fact that you are articulate, that you're confident, that you, you know, stay strong with your beliefs, that actually does a lot. People look at you and they see you as an example of what conservatism can offer. And and that does a great deal. Um, You know, be reasonable, Um, you know, um, make good arguments, Uh, familiarize yourself with conservative principles. Don't just believe everything that the Republican Party tells you, because a lot of times there are a lot of hacks in the Republican Party. And, And I would Say you know, always remember what your principles are. Number two, when it comes to what's happening outside of our country, um, uh, one of the great things about capitalism is that it has made travel overseas much less expensive. And and as one of the ladies uh, talked about earlier, when you go to countries that are not free, when you go to countries that are not liberal democracies, heck, even when you go to Europe where you know um, where the countries are liberal democracies but where they have this massive welfare state, you realize that um, that our brand of freedom is very different from um, what exists elsewhere in the world. Our brand of freedom is actually very different from the brand of freedom in Canada, just our neighbor up north, because when you work up there, there are plenty of people who get taxed, I don't know, to nearly half of their income. Um, And if folks here feel that 20%, 30%, 40% tax is theft, Fifty percent definitely is theft. So um, you know, travel around the world. T- you know, bring the stories back. Talk about what it you know what it is that other people do, and talk about um, talk about what sort of what sort of virtues America actually has. And I, I you know, and there are all kinds of folks who found organizations to help. People and you know um, help the less fortunate, both here in the U.S. as well as overseas. But um, a lot of this is yeoman's work. You know, we need more people to participate, um, and I I think it's great that a lot of folks here want to get into policy and politics work. You know, for instance, work on Congress, work in the executive branch, but. For all of the, for everyone who wants to go into investment banking, who wants to go make some money, who wants to go into real estate, whatever it is, you don't have to go into policy or politics to make a difference. You know, just by virtue of, of being who you are and and holding on to your conservative principles, uh, you know, perhaps even just in the private sector, not in the public sector, that makes a big difference too. Every voice counts, and so I would just say, you know, stay true to those principles.
0: Oh, yes. Um, I just finished reading Howard French's book, China's Second Continent. Are you familiar with it? Yes, yes. I've Um, actually interviewed him on
1: a radio show that I used to host.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I would love to know your thoughts on the Chinese presence in parts of Africa and what that looks like in the foreign policy landscape.
1: Um, So I thought that book was very well written. Howard's a great writer. One thing I... um, I didn't like about it, and, and I've never actually said this publicly, is I really did not like all the pot shots he took against conservatives in his book. He took all kinds of cheap shots at the Tea Party. And and there was no reason why any of that should have been there, because it's a book about China's presence in Africa. <laughs> um, you know, our domestic politics is not even relevant to that book. And, and unfortunately, this is what happens so often in our society, you know, when you um, are interacting with folks who are part of these elitist organizations. I think Howard used to work for the New York Times, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, when you're in New York and San Francisco and Chicago and you meet all of these folks who are very well-educated and very well-spoken, and every now and then they'll just let it slip. You know, conservatives are just these idiots. The Tea party, party is full of extremists. And, and, um, and they say that as if it's gospel, and you know, it's because one, they rarely ever encounter people who think otherwise, and two, because their views um, permeate our society so much that they don't really—they um, they don't really bother to even think it's a little bit rude for me to say that in front of a bunch of people who might not agree with me. Um, but but to your to to your question about China's presence in Africa, um, China, um, as a result of its. Um, Economic growth in the last 35 years or so. A lot of Chinese companies have gone overseas to seek new opportunities, um, and some of them are private companies. But many of China's state-owned companies are some of the largest conglomerates in the world these days, and they've got the resources. And so, um, one reason why they've gone to Africa is because China needs energy. You know, um, uh, the country is developing; they're building new cities. Lots of folks are moving into cities, uh, and. Um, And China needs energy, it needs natural resources, and Africa is a continent that's very much rich in all of these resources, and so China has decided to make its way there. and then there are also a lot of Chinese citizens, individual Chinese citizens, who feel that that's a place for them to to um, to make their wealth. That Africa offers uh, economic opportunities but beyond what their you know what their country can offer. That it's a brand you know it's kind of like a new frontier for a number of these these folks. And so, um, if I remember the numbers correctly, I think Howard said there are now about a million Chinese people on um, on the African continent. Um, Uh, or approximately that much, and that number has really grown dramatically over the years. Um, It's a a fascinating phenomenon. Um, I think that, you know, when we see capital move across the globe, when we see labor move across the globe. Um, um, it's it's fascinating simply because we see where the opportunities are. In China's case, it's even more fascinating because it's not driven purely by market forces. A lot of times it is driven by the edict of the state. And, um, you know, it's, it's a, a phenomenon that countries like the United States would just need to keep observing. Um, and I, I think that because of the power, the economic leverage that a lot of these state-owned enterprises from China has um, to make deals with local governments in Africa that are corrupt or or to do a lot of other things that you know purely free market entities can't do. It's something that we have to watch. Um, right now, I, I don't share the concern of a lot of my friends on, on the right who think that this is some kind of a big national security crisis waiting to happen. Um, I think that you know when capital moves, it's a good thing. When labor moves, it's a good thing. It's it's just that um, where our strategic interests are um, are implicated, we do need to pay a lot more attention. So um, you know, and, and we can talk uh, for much longer about this phenomenon. But that's I, I think it was a good book. It was a fascinating book about folks who about Chinese folks who live in a communist country and who are seeking opportunities beyond what their country has to offer and who have showed up in Africa with their own prejudices. Many of these folks are kind of racist against Africans, um, against black people, but, um, but then they do realize that the African continent has a lot to offer to them that China does not, may not have. And so it, it's a fascinating story. I think it, it's a good book. Yes.
0: Um, I'm from Wisconsin, so I paid a lot of attention to the primary the other week. Um, And I heard a lot of when Bernie Sanders won, a lot of people on the news saying, well, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't really count because Wisconsin is 90-some percent white, and Hillary Clinton has the minority vote and the black vote. Um, And I was just wondering what kind of advice you may have given Dr. Carson about kind of trying to get through to that community and open their mind to conservative ideas.
1: So unfortunately, Dr. Carson's campaign was suspended before... Wisconsin, so we did not actually make it there. And one of the things we were very proud of on the campaign was that we at- appealed to everybody—people of all races, uh, people of all backgrounds—and Dr. Carson um, has a a story that is very inspiring, and it is very much um, intimately intertwined with the progress that you know um, our fellow our, our, that African Americans have made in this country, but. Um, What has always inspired me about him was that he never played the race card. He does not see, you know, he believes very, let let me say this. Number one, he believes very strongly in helping um, African-American young men, people who might be lost like he once was. And so he founded a nonprofit that helps, you know, inner city children read all across the country. It's a fantastic Organization, but you know, in terms of having a message for the entire country, and one reason why he appealed to so many people across the country was that his message was a universal one. He believed in hope. He he believed in healing. Um, he believed that our country was uh, very much. Um, facing kind of a turning point, he was very concerned about the massive debt, uh, now over 19 trillion national debt, and he was very concerned about leaving that debt to young people like you because he felt that was simply immoral. So his message, um, whether, you know, whether about lower taxes or stemming illegal immigration or doing more to care for our veterans, everywhere he went, his message was always a universal one and he didn't believe. um, I mean, he wanted votes from every sector, from women, from men, from, you know, from blacks, from whites, uh, from Latinos and Asians. Um, but he was very, you know, and I was very proud of the fact that he was always talking to everybody and not pandering to their worst fears and not pandering to their racial grievances. And because we all have our grievances and um, and, you know, and I think what he wanted to do was to to really have a positive message for for everybody. Um, Hillary and, and Bernie see things differently, so I wouldn't even know how to begin to offer them advice. Yes?
0: Well, thank you so much for your, your sharing your story. It resonates so much with my story. My parents are immigrants from Mexico, so I really um, uh, resonate with your story, so thank you for sharing that. And My question, I guess, is... In the conservative movement, it's often seen that people who are minorities pull the race card, and that that's a crutch that we rely on. I happen to be a very proud Mexican American conservative. Like I embrace both of those identities, and I was just wondering, how do we ask? How do we begin to change the language that we use with regards to minority conservatives, and or maybe even just minority people in general? Like, what is your perspective on that? And um, I. I hope it doesn't come off as, like, a heated question. That's not my intent. I just mean to, no, like, kind of... No, no, not at, of, all. Not what, at what, all. Are you, what are your thoughts on not, that? So, not at all. Thank you. So th-
1: thank you so much for, for that question. So um, when I... You know, I certainly... I've wrestled with different aspects of that question myself. Um, uh, we all have um, our heritage or, you know, we... There's, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being proud of your culture, proud of your heritage, whether it's because, you know, your parents um, are um, descendants of Irish immigrants or whether, you know, you come from um, um, a Mexican family or, in my case, a Chinese family. I mean, I think, um, you know, in America, one great thing is you can choose. You can choose to embrace that or you can choose... Not to. Um, and I think one of the problems with our friends on the right is that they often fall into the same trap as our friends on the left, which is that they often talk using exactly the same language that the left has bequeathed to us. And so, you know, the left says, and going back to identity politics, the left says because you're of this gender, of this ethnicity, or of this and that, you ought to see things differently, you know, and you ought to see things differently from white men, and, and you ought to feel this way. Um, and the Republican Party, uh, you know, just does not have enough racial or gender diversity. And And, and then so the Republican Party goes, But look, we've got Condi Rice, and she's black and she's a woman, and and look, we've got this other person. And then so we end up falling into this trap where we're playing catch-up. We're sort of in this awful bidding war with the left. We've got all these tokens ourselves, you know, and they're our tokens, and and they're better than your tokens. Um, And unfortunately, it's sometimes hard not to play that game because... Um, that is how our society has learned to talk. Um, the rhetoric of the left has so infused our lingo that it is sometimes difficult for us to break out of it. It took me many years to break out of it myself. Um, I, you know, and and there is a sort of a there are sometimes. What I would call the Republican or conservative brand of affirmative action, right? So we would say, "Look, we've got Marco Rubio, and he's a minority, and and he's this Cuban guy, and he speaks Spanish. So there." and um, you know, and, and, and every time I hear that, it's, you know, it's kind of funny because Marco, um, I don't agree with everything he says, but what he emphasizes all the time is, you know, um, he's proud of being an American. I'm sure he's very proud of his Cuban roots. He obviously speaks Spanish fluently, so he's very in touch with, you know, his parents' culture. And, um, but I, I think as a whole, conservatives need to stop participating in the debate on the um, uh, using the framework. That the left has set for the debate. So view everybody um, as Americans. It, it, respect who they are. Um, respect matters a lot. You know, folks like me. I'm not going to expect people to know the kind of Chinese culture that I'm interested in. So, for instance, uh, I'm currently reading the Confucius Analects in Chinese. I don't expect anybody to care or ask me, you know, or to know what the Confucian Analect says. Um, um, but you know, I think. I am always very happy when people are respectful of that, but I, I don't. I don't get offended if people don't know or don't care, and I think we ought to, folks on the right. One number one, like I said, need to stop talking about these issues using the left's paradigm. Number two, just develop thicker skin. Some you know, and and if sometimes you accidentally say something that um, someone else might get a little bit offended about. Um, people really ought to stop getting so offended about so many different things. Um, you know, a lot of times people are well-intentioned and they don't mean to offend. So just let it go for, you know, Republican minorities stop saying, oh my God, they said this. And, you know, and that just means that all these races still exist in the GOP. Most of the time they're not racist. They're just, you know, most of the time people are unintentional. They don't really know and they don't mean to offend. Um, So for the GOP minorities or conservative minorities develop thicker skin. And overall, I would, you know, stick to, um, um, I, I would stick to what I said earlier about Dr. Carson. You know, there are lots of principles that appeal to everybody, you know, and I think we should appeal to the best in all of us, not the racial grievances, not the gender grievances, and, and not our fears. And we have a question here from Dan. Do you still have a question, Danielle? It was related
0: to okay. one, so that's okay. okay. Um, with that, we're out of time, but everyone, thank you. Okay, Jane. thank you so much.